Hey, good morning, Four Corners. My name's Ben. I'm so glad you're here. If you're our guest with us today, especially glad that you're here for the next installment of our message series, Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe, where we've been looking at some misconceptions, some untruths, and we've been trying to see what God's Word has to say about them. Jesus said that you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you don't know the truth, the corollary is if there's some bondage, there's some ineffectiveness, there's some lack of productivity when we're basing our decisions and actions on misconceptions or half-truths. So in an attempt to get to the bedrock, what we're doing is looking at some of these dumb things. And today I'm going to talk with you about a topic that really is difficult to talk about because it seems so stark. We're going to talk about hell today. And in the history of this church for 10 years, we've dealt definitively with this topic a handful of times. It comes up occasionally, but today we're going to do what we always do around here. We're going to just take the topic, put it on the table, and discuss it kind of directly and transparently. Um, So uh, real quickly, uh, as a way of kind of getting ready to talk about hell, this Friday is Black Friday, which is the modern equivalent (laughs) of hell. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, I grew up in a a Christian tradition where uh, hell was such a serious topic, you couldn't joke about it at all, but uh, I like to just you know, like figure out what people are saying that's kind of funny related to the topics that we're talking about. And um, so, so here, here's one. Um, what do you get when you mix a lawyer with a demon from hell? You guys know what you get? Another lawyer. Uh, that's one thing. <laughs> uh, for, for the Catholics in the room, do you know how to make holy water? You boil the Hades out of it. That, that's what you do. Uh, silly. Silly. Totally silly. Um, so... Listen, I, I'm just trying to bring a little levity to what could be a very tough, tough topic. And one last thing, since it is going to be Black Friday, um, many people in this church are doing uh, this book right now in small group. It's called Unshakable, Standing Strong When Things Go Wrong. I'm going to talk about this book uh, just a little bit today, but uh, if you want a copy of this book um, written by a guy named Nelson Searcy, who's my coach, and then I wrote the foreword to the book, it'll be available at our information station right outside the guest services table there. My wife actually will be there. And typically the book sells for 10 bucks, but this week in honor of Black Friday and get ready for Christmas, it's two for 20, two for 20 on that. <laughs> so, so you're ready to, to go. Okay. No, seriously, it's a good, it's a good book. All right, so let, let's talk about this topic. Um, here's our misconception, and it's a misconception because it's too broadly stated. It's not that it's not true. It's not true in every sense, every time. Here it is. Dead people go to a better place. Dead people go to a better place. Every funeral I've ever attended, the sentiment is, is dead people go to a better place. And again, the challenge is, is that biblically speaking, biblically speaking, that's not always true. And nobody likes to talk about it. It's not a pleasant reality. And yet, as people of faith, we're talking about dumb things smart Christians believe. I'm talking t- today primarily to an, to an audience of people that are moving into the relationship with Jesus. They are pressing in. They're there. We have to. We don't have a choice. We have to take God's word Seriously. Now, a lot of times when people come into this church, they see how contemporary we are. We do a, a song you might hear on the radio pretty regularly around here. The, the core looks kind of cool and it's young. And they think, oh, one of those contemporary churches that's maybe a little slack on theology. Well, that's just simply not true. We're certainly contemporary. We don't make any apologies about that. But we take God's word very seriously around here. And, and I'm not a pastor I'm not a pastor if I don't bring to you what God's word has to say with clarity. 
If I water that down to make you feel better, I am not true to my call, and I actually harm you. And uh, ultimately, if you have a pastor that does that, it's not a pastor worth his salt, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this topic, and what I'm calling our talk today is a loving talk about a worrisome topic. So will you let me be totally transparent with you for about 45 seconds on the screen? I took time to write it out. I hope when we all get to heaven and, and, and we find out that there's a loophole <laughs> that everybody gets to go in. That's going to make me so happy if that were true. However, next slide. The reason I'm talking about this, teaching on this, and the reason I believe what we're getting ready to talk about is because Jesus taught it. And I'm as uncomfortable with it as anybody else in this room. But I don't get a choice. And we don't deal a lot of time on this, but the truth is, is we cannot cut out the scriptures we don't like, even if we think we have a really good reason to do so. You can't do that. Now, you can. Let's be honest. People do it all the time. We just avoid certain topics. And then, of course, churches have personalities, and they have their favorite topics they like to talk about. But a biblically true church that has integrity over the course of a year deals with the topics that are easy and motivate us all and the ones that are a little harder to talk about because in our modern age, nobody wants to talk about hell. And nobody wants to talk about a devil, Satan. In fact, we've relegated people who talk to those kinds of things as the simple-minded, we think about that, or the extreme. So, you know, today, I don't want to be Westboro Baptist Church. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that bigot, you know, who, who, who is uh, kind of a religious exclusivist. And I don't want you to think of me that I'm intellectually less able because I believe what the Bible says, that there's this spiritual being called the devil. And he resides in a place called hell. But as much as I'm worried about what you think about me, I'm more concerned about what he thinks about me. So that's what we're calling each other to today. So let me start with you with one of the most stark comments Jesus makes. I don't know all of the implications of what Jesus is saying here, but some of the implications are obvious. But no matter what you think about the implications of this verse, it's stark. It's a dividing line. John chapter 14, verse 6, here's what Jesus says. Just reading straight from the text. Jesus answered... I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So far, so good. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound so nice. Here's the thing about Jesus and our modern understanding of him. Everybody likes this guy. Because he took care of the disenfranchised. He was there with the poor. He modeled what it was. He said such incredible things like, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. The golden rule. Everybody likes this guy as a great moral teacher. But when he says stuff like this... Theologians jump through hoops to make it mean not what it obviously means. So they write books about stuff like this. And some you know, fringe edges of Christianity, true Christianity, spend a lot of time explaining away comments like this. It makes us uncomfortable. And yet that's exactly why we come to church, isn't it, to be honest? I mean, you're not here just to get brownie points with God, are you? Because it doesn't work that way. We're, we're here to worship together as a community, bring our resources together to serve our world, and we're here to grow as followers of Christ. Now, here's what we'd all like to believe. 
We'd all like to believe that dead people go to a better place because, A, God grades, grades on a curve. God grades on a curve. I used to be a high school teacher. And um, on occasion, uh, I, I get the test results, you know, I get done grading uh, the test results in the class, and everybody would bomb. And so I had a couple choices to make. Either um, decide that I was a horrible teacher and didn't do a great job, or that they're all idiots. And um, typically what we do is kind of do a, a do-over, and the way we do that is one of two ways. I'd you know, re reteach, retest, or I'd grade on a curve for that moment. But even when I graded on a curve, I mean, there were still people that were at the lower rungs, right? Even, even if you add a few points, there's still people on the lower rung. Here's, here's what we do spiritually. We like to think that as long as I'm not so bad, so I'm not Ted Bundy. You guys remember him? Those that, you know, like my, as long as I'm not Ted Bundy, um, I'm, I'm, I'm good with God. I mean, I, hey, I know I'm not great. I, I got a little problem with this over here. I do a little of this over here. But I'm certainly not like him. And since God grades on a curve, I'm fine. I'm not, you know, killing people with a chainsaw. So I'm pretty good. I'm not intentionally doing... So I like to think God grades on a curve. And because he does, then we're all okay. Or at least, as long as you're as good as most people, you're fine. Here's the second thing. We, we like to think that this doesn't really matter because as long as you're sincere, then any spiritual path works. And I get it. Because we really value sincerity and authenticity in our culture today. And we should. That's a big value for this church. You can be real here. You don't have to even believe what I'm saying right now. And you get to be a part of our church. If you want to be. You don't get to preach the message if you don't <laughs> engage our theology. But you do get to be a part of our church. And we like to think that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Here's another challenge. We say that a God of love wouldn't send anyone to hell. And because as we understand God's character, we know God is love. God's word tells us God is love. And so nobody spends eternity away from God. In fact, there was a, a very famous popular pastor in churches like ours who a few years ago wrote a book about love and God. And his basic, the question he begged at least was, very simply, um, that hell as it's understood in Christianity at large is not accurate. And so instead... God's love is going to make hell very small at, at worst, or at best, maybe not exist at all. Kind of sent ripples through Christianity for a few months anyway. And the final thing that I think that we think sometimes is, is only a bigot, an ignorant bigot, big, uh, bigot thinks that Jesus is the only way. And yet when you read the New Testament, I'm not even talking about Paul necessarily, but when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' own words, we come face to face with some very stark language Jesus uses around hell. Now let's be clear. The hell that, the, the hell that Jesus talks about is not the hell that gets depicted in our cartoons and in our movies and in our horror flicks. In fact, when the word hell, the word that we have from the Greek translated into hell uh, in English, um, Here's what the average person had in mind when Jesus would speak about it back in the day. And we're going to talk about how important this is. See, when Jesus was alive doing his work in and around Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a city has a wall around it. And there are multiple gates around the city. One of the gates is called the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate. And that is where the trash of the city was brought out of the city. 
through that gate, dumped into a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. That was their garbage dump. That's where dead carcasses were carried out. When sacrifice was being performed, the leftover pieces taken out the dung gate. Body refuse taken out the dung gate. Uh, people of ill repute who died were not buried with honor. They were taken out the dung gate. And in the dung, through the dung gate into the valley of Hanan, there were fires that burned all through the night. All the time you could smell the stench of this fire. And the worms, the maggots, ate on those carcasses. And the smell was horrible and the fire was not quenched. And Jesus, often when he would be teaching, would reference this very known, commonly understood reality that was right outside the gate and talking about what would happen to people who approached eternity without God. It would be like that place there that we all know about. Now, because what I just said is true, and it is, there's no need to debate me on what I just said is true, doesn't necessarily mean you have to come to the conclusions that I'm going to talk about, but I think at least we should try to be biblically consistent. Some people said because Jesus was pointing to a real place, he never meant all the stuff that hell has come to mean later on. The challenge is, we're going to discover in just a few minutes as we go to more scripture, the challenge is, is that Jesus talks about a physical place, the Valley of Hinnon, talks about that, where the fire does not die and the worms crawl and people gnash their teeth and it's an ugly place. By the way, this is a place where in the Old Testament they did child sacrifice. It's horrible, horrible place. Because he's talking about a physical place, then it doesn't point to a spiritual reality. But in Jesus' own words, he incorporates this metaphor of this fiery, awful place to be avoided at all costs. And he talks about the fact that not just our bodies which would be physical, but our very souls can be touched by this place. And so just defining the historicity of the metaphor Jesus is using doesn't in any way remove the weight of the eternal impact of Jesus' words. It's not just a physical thing that people back then understood. It had a spiritual meaning because Jesus applied a certain soulishness or eternity to the topic. He just used the metaphor that everybody had in mind to bring clarity to what life without God ultimately would look like. It would be a horrible thing. It would be a horrible thing. We don't know all that hell's going to look like. Now, I could pretend to, and I could write a book about it, and I bet I could get a lot of people to buy it. it it's amazing in Christianity when you have people who are sincere in their faith how fear can become a powerful motivator. And so sometimes what well-meaning Christians do, and it takes a subject like this and removes its real point of discussion and importance to some other secondary level of value, what real well-meaning Christians sometimes do is, is they'll use fear to help people take things seriously. I, I do this sometimes in my parenting. I'm not sure it's all wrong. Don't run out into the street and, and you know, catch the ball, look both ways, because if you don't, you're going to get hit by a car and die, right? I don't, it wasn't maybe that stark, but I'm trying to use fear. Don't touch the stove because it will burn you. Not all bad. But in matters of faith, the return on a fear motivation is very small. Very small. And it doesn't linger that long because over time, things that get repeatedly said, you lose your fear of them. 
And so in this church, the reason why we've only dealt definitively like a whole topic around, around the subject of hell is three times in ten years, although it's come up many, many times throughout the year in smaller bites, is because I know as a pastor that it's not my job to fear you into a relationship with God. I hold that intention because the scripture makes it clear that all of us should have a certain healthy fear of God. But it's not my job to leverage that to motivate you. In other words, if you're thinking about faith today, you came here today hoping to get some hope, thinking about maybe being in a relationship with God, here's what's not going to happen in our remaining moments. I'm not going to use hell to beat you across the line of faith to help you make a decision. Turn to life, turn your life over to Christ today because without it, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's, that's not what I'm doing. I would much rather you think seriously about what Jesus actually said and take time to make an informed decision about what you're going to do with your eternal soul. Because that's what Jesus does with this topic. He talks about it not to fear people, although the very topic is fear-producing. He talks about it in hopes that people would hear the realities and make some informed, not emotionally driven, but informed decisions in light of the realities. And he saves his harshest comments to a handful of people. For instance, people who take advantage of children, in his culture, women, the poor, they get his sternest rebukes, and there's a lot of language when Jesus is talking to those kinds of people about hell. There's a lot of language about hell from Jesus when he's talking to what he calls the, the, the religious, what we would call the religious hypocrites. The people who not just lived inconsistent lives. We use that word hypocrite so loosely. We're, you're all hypocrites. So am I. We're all hypocrites. So be careful how you use that word. None of us live up to what we know to be right. None of us live up to the standard we hold other people to. When Jesus is talking about the hypocrites in his day, he specifically is referring to people who use religion to build barriers to God to make themselves feel better. And when Jesus talks to those people, lots of language about hell and what's really at stake. So hell has some history, the language, the metaphor, the meaning. Jesus seems to take it very seriously. And some groups of people, he like really wants them to take it seriously. So what does the Bible then actually say? Let's do a little survey here together about the Bible actually says. The Bible says that there is this reality that we must soberly consider because Jesus did called hell. So in Matthew chapter 10, 28, Jesus' words here, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In the Valley of Anon, bodies can get diseases, they can get killed, whatever. But there's a soulishness, there's an eternity thing as well going on here. He says, so rather be afraid of the one, that would be God, who can destroy both soul and body. Because he controls not just the physical world, but the eternal world. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 45, Jesus talking. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, a child, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into a sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands going into hell where fire does not go out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. In other words, hell is such a thing to be avoided that whatever cost you have to pay to avoid it, pay that cost. 
some people who are weird and take the Bible way too far, have literally cut off their hands or other body parts because they thought those body parts were causing them to sin and missed the whole point of what Jesus is actually saying. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians picks up on Jesus' words talking to this church at Thessalonica and he says these words, God is just, God's fair. And because he's fair, because he's just, he's going to punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And he says, this includes you because you believed our testimony. Paul says, look, we're going to be cut off from God's presence. In fact, I think a robust, biblically consistent theology of hell begins with this primary point. That whatever else hell may be, whether the metaphor of the Valley of Hinnon is the reality of it or not, whatever it may be, it is at least this, and maybe most terribly this. It is complete absence from the presence of God. And the biblical writers make it clear that every source of joy is somehow connected to the presence of God. And to be absent the presence of God is to be devoid of all joy which makes Jesus' words on the cross incredibly painful when he says to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The presence of God removed. Now, as long as you're breathing on this earth, you still have the benefit either actively to be in the presence of God because you chose to invite Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. You responded to his call, said yes to what he had called you to, Or you have the spillover effect that God's spirit is still at work in the world, even though you're not fully there. Maybe never will be. Okay, that's fine. It's on you. But you still get the spillover effect of God's presence being everywhere in the created order. But not so in hell. Completely devoid of the presence of God. Any source of joy is absent. The other metaphor we use is light. Any source of light is completely absent because God, the source of all light, is gone. So hell is utter darkness. Whether that's literally or not is irrelevant. It doesn't matter because God's not there. And that is the pain. That is the pain. And no pain like flames or darkness makes it worse. No, it, it can't get any worse because God's not there. So Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, and there was a book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead and that, and, uh, that were in it, and death and Hades, one of the terms for hell, gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Literal or not, it's irrelevant. Some of you believe it is, some of you believe it's not, some of you don't believe in it. Here's what the writer of the Revelation is trying to tell us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Stay away from this place. Stay away. How do you stay away? You get your names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The point isn't what to avoid. The point is what to run to. In fact, this is what Jesus was doing every time he talked about hell. 
Life without God here and now begins to paint you in a prison. It feels like freedom. Walk with me for just a second here. Rebellion against God feels like freedom. I will do what I want. I'll do what I want in defiance, or I'll do what I want ignoring. Less of a defiance and more of just not acknowledging. But I'm going to do what I want. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, says it this way, that hell then becomes the ultimate expression of you and me doing what we want. We then begin to experience hell here on earth, and unfortunately, the hell on earth that we begin to experience by that defiance that feels like freedom ultimately enslaves us. And when we pass from this life to next, he writes, we will find ourselves in the very hell that we created, devoid of the presence of God. In effect, we said no to God, and he said, okay, if that's the way you want it. And so Jesus, when he talks about hell, is trying to get people to say yes to God. Say yes to God. The writer of Hebrews writes it this way in Hebrews chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. We don't know all that hell physically is going to look like. I like to say it's fire or worse. I don't know. I'm not even going to debate it because what we do know is God's not there. And anything good ultimately derives its origin from the Father of lights, the giver of all good gifts, the Bible tells us. And if God's not there, nothing good is there. So hell then becomes, or involves at least, emotional separation from God. A physical separation from His presence. A relational separation, a loneliness, and an aloneness like you've never known. And a spiritual separation with no hope. At all. The Bible tells us that hell was made for Satan and the angels, not for us. So in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus again talking, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It was made to be the place of the rebellious who have said, God, we don't want you. We're going to do it our way. And God says to them, Okay. It's less an active punishment more than it is the natural consequences of rebellion. Revelation 20.10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the first reality I think we can say about hell is that it was made for Satan and the angels, not, not really for people. Here's another thing I think we have to address if we're going to take this subject seriously and take what Jesus is communicating seriously. No, listen, you don't have to buy my ideas. It's fine. But if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, we can't be so cavalier with his words. So here's the second thing, and it goes f straight into the face of our culture. Biblically speaking, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't. And for Paul... In the New Testament, this is actually a, a, a source of joy for us that he doesn't. Can, let, let me take a few minutes and try to unpack the, the logic here. So just to show you, biblically speaking, God doesn't grave on a curve before I kind of get into the explanation. Isaiah 64. All of us, who all of us 
have become like the one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts, all of our doing good, ultimately measure up to filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, sw- our sins sweep us away. So who does this apply to? All of us. Romans 3.23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far, the biblical writers are consistent across several types of genre within the 66 books we call our Bible, that we are all sinners. And we know this. You know this. You know you're not perfect. That's why we gravitate towards God must grade on a curve. For our culture, if they embrace God at all, he grades on a curve. I'm not as bad as. I'm not as bad as that rock music, if that's your thing. I'm not as bad as that prostitute. I'm not as bad as that drug dealer, that mass murderer. Because we're all sinners. We've got to have some way to deal with this. It must be the curve. Let's keep reading a few scriptures, then we'll get to that. John, 11, or John 1, verse uh, 12 through 13. John here is giving the introduction to why he's writing the story of Jesus. And he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Here's what John's saying. We're all equal here. There is no curving. We're all sinners. But also, here's some good news. Because we're all sinners, we all have access. We all have access then to the Savior. Not a motivational speaker, not a goodwill intender, but a Savior who saves people from their sins. Because we are all sinners, that sounds bad, we gravitate towards the curve. John writes, no, it's not the curve, it's the Savior that handles the fact that we're all sinners. So then the conclusion becomes, well, what do we do with the curve? What do we do with it? What's going on there? Two more comments and we'll get to it. Jesus, Jesus is the only ticket to heaven is one of the implications we draw from Jesus' stern words in John 14, 6, I am the way. When he talks about the dividing line between those who make it to eternity with God or eternity without God. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if I did not set aside the grace of God, I did not set aside the grace of God, Paul says, when he came preaching to the church at Galatia. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He says, here's the deal. We either needed the grace of our Savior, or we could earn it. So I came to you preaching, you can't earn it, because if you could earn it, then Jesus didn't have to die. So let's make a few yeah, but comments here then. So how should we live? How should we live in light of these things, this kind of, exploratory survey of hell and some of the stickier issues related. Let me talk to you as a pastor now. A pastor who God has for the last 10 years allowed me to gather incredibly smart people around me and together we have built a pretty amazing church. We've built an amazing church not because we're awesome but because God's pretty awesome and he allows us that grace. How we think through this issue has dramatic impact on how we do ministry. It affects our urgency. Like, is it really important? It also has the power to touch our tone. And what we've discovered in 10 years of ministry is the tone that you talk about things is sometimes more important than even what you're saying. I don't think pastors should preach about hell without it breaking their hearts a little bit. It's not a battering ram. 
Jesus didn't use it that way. He was unrelenting and perfectly clear, and he leveled conversations about hell in very dark places. But the whole purpose for him being on the earth to speak to people anyway was the hopes that they could avoid it. So how then do we live? How do we live? Number one, I think we have to trust God with our yeah, but questions. I think we have to trust God with our yeah, but questions. Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we, we can't please God on our own. We've got to come to him and believe that he exists. And here's the cool thing. He rewards those people that seek him. When I, when I have questions about what God's ultimately going to do with people who've never heard, I don't know fully. What I do is I go to God's character. I trust him in character when I don't know what he's going to actually do. Not a, not a pitch. The reason so many people in our church are reading Unshakable right now, the reason we chose it for small groups, is because this book only does two things. In the middle of the storms of life, it asks people to consider what the Bible actually says, and then it asks them to consider the character of God. So when somebody close to you dies, what's God's heart on the matter? When you're struggling with illness, what's God's heart on the matter? When you're struggling with failure, what's God's heart on the matter? See, when I don't know what God's going to do, I take comfort in his character. When I can't discern his hand, I trust his heart. That's what I have to do with questions of faith like, yeah, what about this? I know that God rewards those that seek him. That's just his character. I can trust him to work the rest out. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are some things only God knows, but he's revealed some things to us. And when it comes to hell, here's what he said, avoid it. Choose God here and now. And when you do that, it affects here and now. You give up your right to freedom or rebellion, depending on which side of the coin you're looking at, and instead you follow his lordship, and then that provides for you access to the Father and all that he has. Choose that. So the gospel is clear in the Bible, even though mechanically how God's going to work through everything isn't always so clear. So I don't know these things. I can't say definitively. I do have opinions. I know a few things. The Bible gives us hints. But the Bible is crystal clear on salvation through Christ. And so I take what I have and I trust him with what I don't fully grasp. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God speaking here through the prophet, are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Some things I'm not going to understand because God's bigger and I'm not. I, I want to take a few minutes and talk about this grading on a curve thing. And, and so, gentlemen, doing my slides, I hate to do this to you, but can you back me up to the um, inclusion versus exclusion thing on my slides? I can't pull it up on my notes. We're going to strike all this out of the audio. You'll never hear this, by the way. Around the world, they'll think I never, never mess up. All right? <laughs> Editing. Let's talk about some inclusion versus exclusion stuff. Isn't this really where the rub is? Like, is it really inclusive? Or are we an exclusive group? 
I don't know what you need to believe. Let me just tell you some of my processing. Number one, I think you can either believe that faith in Christ is not necessary to have a relationship with God and you can just be good, or you have to believe that we're only saved by grace through faith in Christ. I don't think you can believe both at the same time. So you're left with a choice. Keep working hard and get good enough and earn it. At least go over the 50% mark on the curve. Because if, if he's grading on a curve, you've got to get past the 50% mark or, or you still fail. I mean, in the grading of the curve, there are still people at the bottom who don't pass. So your best bet then is to work really hard to be good. Or you can believe the gospel, which says none of your goodness does it anyway. So throw yourself onto the mercy and the character of God who provided a way of escape through Jesus. But to try to hold both of those together is a logical inconsistency of the first degree. The first law of logic is, engineers get ready for this, ready? An object cannot be both A and non-A at the same time. Can't be. Now, if you get lost in that, all I'm saying is it can't be two and three at the same time. It can't be grace and works at the same time. It's either works or grace. And so Paul keeps saying, it's grace. Quit trying to earn this. It's grace. You can't earn this. It's grace. You can't earn this. But if we embrace the curve mentality to somehow sound kinder and nicer, then we are destroying the fundamental tenet of the gospel. I don't know all that it's going to look like. There's some room in there for discussion of mechanically what God's going to do. But I know at the end of the day, it's going to be grace, not the earning. Number two, I think that the apparently inclusive approach is really quite exclusive. It says the good people who cross the 50% mark rating on a curve can actually find God, but the bad people, they they still don't have a prayer. Because if you are Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, you know, if you run with the wrong crowd, depending on where your spiritual tradition is, whatever they put down here, if you dance or chew or date women that do <laughs> down here, then it doesn't matter. You're still, at the end of the day, spiritually screwed because you weren't crossing the threshold. And this is where the gospel is actually, in my opinion, more inclusive. It says, no matter where you fall, at the top of the moral list or at the bottom of the moral list, the gospel is available to all, not just the ones who make it to the top half of the list. So I think that the problem on this inclusive versus exclusive discussion isn't that it isn't a fair discussion. No, because it speaks to our need for justice. I think though we don't go deep enough into the subject. If it really is God grading on a curve, then still the ones at the bottom are messed up. They don't have any hope. I pray you're not there. I pray you're not morally bankrupt. Because if you are, you have no hope. So number three then, the problem is, what happens to those of us who are moral failures? Well, the... Obvious implication is we're excluded from the possibility of life with God. And that's not the gospel. The darkest, rankest, vilest offender. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That's the gospel. 
So how do we live? I think we go to God with our yeah, but questions. Number two, I think we tell people the good news about Jesus. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's a key verse around here because it's the Great Commission. Then Jesus said to them, all of his followers then and now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Some people are eager to speak for God, but they miss the last part, don't they? With gentleness and respect. I wish some Christians would shut up. I love them. And when they get to heaven and are fully perfected, we're going to get along great. I think because the gospel is good news, we can afford to be winsome, believing that Christ is going to be victorious, and we don't have to be combative. I think we can debate with respect and gentleness. We can discuss with respect, but we don't have to be combative. So in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to this young pastor about how to do, not what to do, but how to do the ministry. This is the tone. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he or she must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And then those who oppose the Lord's servant, he must gently instruct. Why? In the hope that God will grant that person repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. How we talk about these things. And then number four, I think we should remove every obstacle we can one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Paul speaking, talking about how we've got to do everything we can. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he just goes through how he does this. To the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I'm not really under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those who have not been... To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. All things, all people, all means, save a few. All things... All men, all means, save a few. And he says, why do I do this? I do this for the sake of the gospel, that he may share in its blessings. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Do you have this quote for me, gentlemen? He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. This is the attitude of those of us that take Jesus' words seriously. It doesn't give us a battering ram. It doesn't judge us. And honestly, if you take pleasure at all in the fact that some people you can point at say uh, they're going to get theirs, there's something in your heart you need to adjust. That's not what Jesus is doing with this stuff. This is heartbreaking. 
And at the end of the day, we can trust the character of God who sent his one and only son that none would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. To deal with humanity fairly and justly. And let me just give a pastoral warning. We've got to quit begging God to be just. We've got to quit begging him to be just. Because if he is, we're all doomed. You included. Not just the person that hurt you. You included. That's why God will be just. But his justice will be tempered by his grace. In some mechanical way that when he gets done with all of us, all of us, those damned and those redeemed, will look at him and say, you are just God. You are fair God. You are loving God. You are gracious God. I just mechanically can't tell you how he's going to do it. But I can tell you exactly what he called me to tell you to do. Jesus is awesome. Grace is available to every single one of us. Those that have heard and embraced, those that have heard and rejected, those that have never heard and don't know anything, grace of God is available. It's our job to make that crystal clear. And so today, when we get done with our third discussion about hell and the history of this church, we take an entire sermon, not just spots here and there. What I feel compelled to stress is that as this church, we are in the rescue business. Like Spurgeon said, wrapping our arms around their knees as people are dragging themselves under the banner of freedom towards an enslavement of their own rebellion. And our hope is that the message of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit, will grip their hearts and they will turn and follow him. And we get to be a part of sharing that good news. And it's pretty awesome. In two weeks, we're going to begin our Christmas message series. I'm so excited about this. Now, ladies, I'm going to explain to you why I'm doing this message series and I need you to give me a buy on this. We're calling our Christmas series Men at the Manger. Now, it's not because ladies weren't at the manger. Obviously, Mary was there, clearly. We got it. It's all good. She was an integral, you know, integral part. But so often at Christmas, I think, it's just a hunch I have, that the only gift under the tree not unwrapped, the only gift left wrapped under the tree, often spiritually speaking, is the gift of men discovering all God has for them in the holiday season. We do a great job of talking to kids at Christmas. I think we do a good job talking to families, I think women, you know, get a certain amount of joy from that whole connection thing. I'm, I know I'm doing some stereotypes here, but just let me run with the averages. But what we don't do, I think, is making it crystal clear to what a relationship with Jesus really means for men. So I want to unpack the men in the story of the, the nativity and how God impacted their lives in hopes that God would grip the hearts of men in this place and the hearts of men that you'll invite, the people you believe in. And I want you to help me do this. So not next week. Next week we're going to do our last in this message series. But two weeks from now we're going to start Men at the Manger. And it's going to be great. And we're going to get our, our men, I hope, I'm praying, fired up about the full work of Jesus in their lives. What does it mean that Jesus came to have a relationship with men? Now ladies, I hope you get on board with me. And so if you want to write me a nice email and ask questions, ben at fourcornerschurch.com. If you want to write a mean one, greg at fourcornerschurch.com. <laughs> Grab out your connect card. Let's take a few steps together as a congregation, all right? I'm going to give you a chance right now to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to give up rebellion that feels like freedom and let him become the leader of your life. I want you to agree with Scripture. God, I'm a sinner. 
Would you save me? Would you become the Lord of my life? You want to do that, I ask you to check next step A. In a moment, we're going to pray, and you can use my words, use your own, and look up to God and say, God, I give you my life. I want to accept what you have done for me by grace. I want a relationship with God. And then I ask you to take that card and put it in the offering bucket, and we'll communicate with you in the week. You're not joining our church. You're not committing to give money. I just want to explain to you how powerful it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. Here's next step B for us today. Today, you're choosing to get baptized. If you check this, we'll communicate with you, get you signed up for our next baptism, or answer your questions. And together, we'll celebrate what it means to go be buried with Christ and raised to new life in Him. All right, here's next step C. Who will join with me and say, this week I'm going to pray this prayer every day. God, help me to be a part of your team, bringing eternal life through Jesus to all I possibly can. That's what I'm asking you to do with our men at the Manger Series. Bring, bring your, your young boys, bring your men, and let's talk about how God powerfully can change a man's heart, even in this modern world. Here's next step D. You're going to hear about it in a few minutes, but it's our Christmas gift offering. Here's what it says. I'll invest in the ministry of this church here, near and far away, by giving to the My Christmas Gift offering. You're going to hear about it. Some of you already have. You're making this. Check that box. And you can begin giving today at the kiosk on your envelope, on your check, write My Christmas Gift, and that money will go to the projects that you'll hear about. Or next step three, or E rather, I'll invite three men I believe in to attend Men at the Manger with me. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you didn't shy away from the tough stuff. No, you loved us enough to be transparent, honest, and fully disclosing. Now, God, the truth is I wish you had given us more, told us more details. But if I'm honest, God, you told us enough for me to know what I'm supposed to do. God, would you make this church more than ever resolute that we are here to share your good news? That we are here, as we like to say, to give real love now to this community. They would encounter you in a way that changes them for eternity. And God, would you keep our tone in check? Keep our tone in check. God, I pray for those right now that are declaring, Jesus, be my Savior. I give you my life. Forgive me for my sins. And God, I begin right now praying for the men who are going to come for this message series and fully unwrap what it means that Jesus came to this earth, what that means in their lives. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.